ಓಂ ಜ್ಞಾನತಿಮಿರಂದಸ್ಯಾನಂಜನಶಲಕಾಯ ಚಕ್ಷುರುಂಗಿತೇನ ತಸ್ಮೈ ಶ್ರೀಗುರುವೇ ನಮಃ ಅಜುನುಲಂಬುಜೋ ಕನಕಾವದತ ಸಂಕೀರ್ತನಾಯಕಪಿತರೋ ಕಮಲಾಯತಕ್ಷೋ ವಿಶ್ವಂಬರೋ ದ್ವಿಜವರೋ ಯುಗಧಾಮಪಾಲೋ ವಂದೇ ಜಗತ್ಪ್ರಿಯಕರೋ ಕರುಣಾವತಾರೋ ವಂಚಕೌಪತರುಭ್ಯಶ್ಚಾಕೃಪಾಸಿಂಧುಗೇವಚ ಪತಿಭ್ಯೋ ವೈಷ್ಣವೇಭ್ಯೋ ನಮೋ ನಮ ಶ್ರೀ ಗುರಿ ವೈಷ್ಣವ ಗುರು ಪರಂಪರಾ ಕೀ ಜಾಯ್ ಶ್ರೀಮದ್ ಭಗವದ್ ಗೀತಾ ಕೀ ಜಾಯ್ ಶ್ರೀ ಶ್ರೀ ಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಜುನ ಕೀ ಜಾಯ್ ಸೊ ಡಿಸ್ಕಸಿಂಗ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ದ ಫಸ್ಟ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಭಗವದ್ ಗೀತಾ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಫೀಲಿಂಗ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಫಿಲಾಸಫಿ ದಿಸ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ಟೈಟಲ್ ವಿಷಾದ ಯೋಗ ವಾಟ್ ಇಸ್ ದಟ್ ಮೀನ್ ವಿಷಾದ ಡಿಸ್ಪೇರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಪೇರ್ ದಟ್ಸ್ ರೈಟ್ yoga of despair and thus far we've discussed the introduction and the first verse to this first chapter and we touched a little bit in the last talk on one of the basic thrusts of the bhagavad gita being detachment and we talked at some greater length about a higher reach of the Bhagavad Gita in the highest reach of the text and as we come from text 1 which brought us there to some extent as as did the introduction down now to text 2 we go from such higher topics the furthest reach of the text and beneath that a basic thrust of the text as it's a detachment and sacrifice to some very basic points in text 2 through 14 or so where some of the other players in the mahabharat are introduced in the bhagavad gita and it's not at random that they're introduced because we know bhagavad gita stands on its own as a book even though it is part of the mahabharat we mentioned in perhaps the previous class that not everything in bhagavad gita is spoken directly by krishna and jayas speaking for example here and still all of these words of sanjaya are equally important and the names of the persons mentioned in these texts are important as well i've described the first six chapters of the bhagavad gita as the psychology yoga psychology of the bhagavad gita whereas the middle six chapters are the theology and the last six chapters are the the metaphysics of the bhagavad gita of course there's some overlapping of all of these things throughout but these are the general themes so here in the first chapter some of this uh, psychology of the yoga practitioner is brought to light and in one sense we mentioned last week that everything's found in the first chapter one of the ways in which that's true is that the first chapter teaches us what is the proper disposition of a disciple so if we can understand that then the doors are unlocked for us to the world of seva disciple means discipline it means to serve 
And it's a world of service that we want to enter into. So we have to imbibe that spirit of serving. So the qualifications of a disciple are important. Arjuna, of course, is the ideal disciple. And one of the ways in which the Bhagavad Gita works is, as all the scripture does, it works to teach us by directly stating the fact or the truth and indirectly stating it by way of contrasting that a particular truth with with something else that which is which is not true so the perfect disciple is arjuna he's perfect in, in many respects he's perfect in the sense of uh, godi vaishnava idea of guru in the sense that he's the friend of krishna but his friendship is imbued with dasya bhakti it's mixed sankul mixed sakya and dasya so Jilrupa Goswami said about Guruseva, what? Vishrambhina, Vishrambhina Guruseva in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And he's talking, of course, to Gaudiya Vaishnavas. We should serve the Guru affectionately. So he hasn't said reverentially, but affectionately. So it's, it's a kind of a cross between reverence and affection that we find in, for example, Arjun. He's a friend of Krishna, but he's also dasya bhakti, or his friendship, his sakya-bhakti, but it's mixed with dasya-bhakti. So he's the perfect and ideal guru. In the second chapter, he'll take discipleship. He says, Krishna, you're my guru, I'm your sishya, shishasteham sadimam tam prapanam. So please teach me. But here in this first chapter, later on, by his questioning in his speech, it's, he reveals some of the characteristics of the proper disciple. This is important. It's fashionable, of course, to question how to find a bona fide guru, as if there are so many unbona fide ones around, it's hard to sort it out, which is probably true. It's nothing new, though. Nowadays they say that I've heard that these Western gurus are particularly questionable and, and unbona fide, but India, of course, is the land of unbona fide gurus. <laughs> you couldn't find more <laughs> in any one country. And some of them have come here, too. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I respond to this query that I said to find a bona fide guru by advising that learn what it means to be a disciple. Because if we learn what it means to be a disciple and actually imbibe those qualities, then it will be possible for us to see things that perhaps before we couldn't see. A fellow from the Sangha who's been chanting under some internet kind of guidance or inspiration for myself wrote recently that he had read Sridhar Marsh's words with regard to discipleship when he commented in Sri Guruna's grace on the Famous Bhagavad Gita sloka from the fourth chapter, Tadviti Pranipatina Pariprashnena Sevaya. Some of you may have read those words of Sridhar Maharaj, those comments, and among other things, one of the things he said is we shouldn't come cutting a return ticket to our guru, but with bags packed and I'm here to stay, I've moved in, something like that. So anyway, when he was reading that, he remarked, he said that he could see he was far from that standard. And that's important. We were having a brief discussion about this before everyone came. That Rupa Goswami has taught that it's only a few consecutive words, but there's volumes of meaning to each of them in, in between. 
He says that Adogu Ashray, we should take shelter of the Guru, Shiksha Dikshadi. We should get Shiksha from him, initiation from him, and serve Guru Seva Gishwambina. We should serve the Guru affectionately. So those aren't just to skip over. The first one is we should take shelter of a Guru. It means we should sit in the proximity of the Guru and hear for some time. This is ideal situation. We should hear for some time. And he should dispel doubts. That's the business of the guru, to dispel our doubts by invoking the pramana, the evidence that is accepted in the tradition. He should explain why it's the evidence, the shastra and so forth, and then step by step remove our our doubts. And as we become convinced and educated and acquire sambandha jnan, proper knowledge, then we should take initiation. So, some preparation is uh, is useful. That uh, this planting of the seed may take effect. That's the plow of Haldar Balaram to plow the field, to make it fertile for seed planting. He appeared first in the womb of Devaki, made her ready, then appeared as miscarriage. While actually Yogamaya transferred him to the womb of Rahini. And making it ready, Krishna appeared. That is Diksha in Bhagavatam. Devakis receiving Krishna from Vasudev. So it's about uh, a transformation taking place, like becoming pregnant, a big change in your life. So it's important to know the qualifications of the disciple. And um, this in the context of understanding that he was a proper guru. So this chapter deals with that to some extent, not directly, but as we'll see from reading it, that, that insight can be drawn from the text. As we began, as we began uh, discussing this chapter, we mentioned last week that it is often kind of skipped over and thought to be just a, a, a carryover from the Mahabharata that is not as important, and Mahabharata overall may not be as important as the Bhagavad Gita. If you got the Bhagavad Gita, you could do without the Mahabharata. It's uh, wonderful how, from a literary point of view, Bhagavad Gita has been in, inserted in the place that it has in Mahabharata, just at the time when everybody is on the edge of their seat, with the war building up, the political intrigue and romance and so forth, and now the war is about to take place, and if you've ever read Mahabharata, it's quite uh, consuming. By that point, the point that Bhagavad Gita has spoken, you know all the characters, some of whom are going to be mentioned here, what their dispositions are. You hate certain people, you love certain people, you're emotionally involved in the whole text, and as I say, you're on the edge of the seat, and Bhagavad Gita has spoken. So Vyasa has managed, from a literary point of view, to get everybody's attention, and then insert that which... If you heard without the rest of the text, your life would be complete without the rest of the Mahabharata. Mahabharata's kind of like a tabloid. You know, the tabloid is, you see it at the supermarket, it's got all the things that people are really interested in reading. But Vyas inserted something very substantial in there as well, Bhagavad Gita. So in this first chapter, as I say, important information. What are the qualities of a disciple? And, as I mentioned, the text moves by teaching directly and indirectly. So, by way of contrast, here 
in text 2, and for a few verses we're going to hear about what a disciple is not. So if Arjuna is the perfect disciple, who's the epitome of Guru Druha, someone who's merely a burden to the Guru in the name of being a disciple in Bhagavad Gita? Who can say? Duryodhana, the dirty fighter, as his name means, Duryodhana. Sanjay Uvacha. Dishtvatu pandavanikam vidham duryodhanas tada acharjam upasangamya raja vachanam abhavit. Sanjay said, After seeing the battle formation of the Pandava's army, Prince Duryodhana approached his guru and he spoke the following words. Comment. Madhusudan Saraswati says that the word too, but implies the superiority of the Pandavas. The words Abravit, spoke, and Vachanam, words, placed together, appears redundant. However, this usage indicates that Duryodhana's speech, although brief, was possessed of more than one meaning. Pashaitam pandu putranam achaja mahatim chamam vidham drupada putrena Behold, O Master, the strength of the Pandava's military formation, wisely arranged by Drupada's son, your disciple. So the Master, the Guru of Duryodhana is Dronacharya. Dronacharya was a Brahmana, and he taught military art, military science. So, of course, the dharma of the Brahmins is to teach, primarily. Being a teacher of the military arts, obviously he knew them well enough to fight, and so on occasion he would. And this was one such occasion, this great war that was about to take place. He was involved. So Duryodhana, in one sense, appropriately approaches Guru. Duryodhana is, of course, uh, the king of the one side and leading in that sense, but he has a guru of military art and that military science, and so he approaches him apparently humbly and uh, addresses him, Behold, my master, actually, Pashyaitam Panduputranam Acharjam. Pashya is actually familiar usage, and while it might appear here in this section that Dronacharja is respectful for his guru, it will become apparent that it's not the case at all. So it may be that we can speak nicely and praise our guru, and we may have no respect at all. And it may be that the guru also praises certain disciples and doesn't really think that they're very advanced, but he knows they need to hear praise in order for them to continue on and, and be enthusiastic. So we shouldn't ourselves be discouraged if our guru doesn't spend a lot of time praising us, we might be better off. It's said that praise from the guru is one thing and chastisement another. Either one are desirable in one sense compared to the third alternative, but of those two, probably the chastisement is more desirable. If he's praising us, as they say, it may be for an alternative motive. It may be, in other words, that it's what we need to hear, therefore. 
he's praising to encourage us. And if he chastises us, well, we know that he cares about us enough to correct us. You, of course, know the famous story of Prabhupada's joy that he would express upon relating the incident in which Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur chastised him, sitting in the, in the audience, so many disciples, and Saraswati Thakur was sitting in an elevated position, and as he spoke, one of Prabhupada's governors tapped him on the shoulder and was asking him some questions or talking to him. Prabhupada himself wasn't talking, but this other fellow was talking to him, and Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur stopped his lecture and pointed to Prabhupada and said, So, what did he say? Do you think that you can sit here? That you know so much that you don't have to pay attention, that you can sit here? It was kind of a goddess Saraswati on his tongue, <laughs> speaking of the future, the truth. But Prabhupada was so overjoyed to think that Gurumar stopped the whole talk. And I was paying attention, actually, but Somebody was trying to distract me. He cared so much about me. He would stop his whole talk to chastise me. This is the way he took it. And usually, of course, we'll take it. If our guru chastises us, then well, what kind of guru is that? <laughs> he doesn't understand me. Why should I listen? Although we may go home and our husband may, or our wife may chastise us day and night, and we take it, and, or our children harass us and order us around. And, but if a sadhu tells us, raises his voice, no, he's not a sadhu. So we should understand those two things and we should try to see that we secure either the, the glorification of praise from our guru or his chastisement. But the third thing which I haven't mentioned is most undesirable and that is indifference. So if our guru becomes indifferent, then we know that we're in a difficult situation. He thinks it's a waste of time. <laughs> I've said so many things. I've said an example. I've tried in so many ways. It's a waste of time. Why should I waste my breath? So at any rate, here, Duryodhana is praising his guru, Dronacharya, approaching him apparently respectfully. But, as I mentioned, just as the guru may give words of praise and mean something else, so the disciple may give words of praise and not really have much regard at all. You know that Prabhupada used to tell also the story of how on the Rajmandal Parikram, instituted by Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur. One year, Prabhupada went on that, and Sarasati Thakur was speaking every night. They would camp, and then he would give a talk, and then they would go for the next so many miles to circumambulate the whole of the place of Krishna's uh, pastimes. And on one night, it was announced that maybe they had camped in that one place for a couple of days, and this was the last night at this particular time that you could get the darshan of one deity, Seishai Vishnu deity. And so an option was, in effect, by the circumstances presented to the disciples, because Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthakura was speaking at that time. So they had an option, apparently, to either go have the darshan, see the deity, or to stay and listen to Saraswati Thakura speak. And Prabhupada, of course, opted. Sridharmarsh was there too, and he opted as well to listen to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur talk rather than go and see the deity. And when it was marked by Bhaktisiddhanta, Prabhupada noted years later that Gurmarsh noted that I was a good listener because when I was recommended for initiation and he gave me initiation, he said, oh, this boy listens very well. This young man listens very well. 
and probably was thinking he must have been thinking of that occasion when I stayed to listen and pay close attention. So we should pay close attention. We should be a real disciple, and we should not want that our guru becomes in any way indifferent to us. It is said what that first class, Shishu will be one who understands what the guru desires and does it without having to be told. Second class will wait to be told and then do, and the third class, even after being told, will not do. So Drona is kind of in the third class, or excuse me, uh, Duryodhana is in the third class at best. And so we're being instructed here in this section how not to be. He has glorified his master by addressing him as such, O Master, Acharya. And he's advising him, appraising him of the, of the situation. The strength of the Pandu's military formation is wisely arranged by Dropada, or Dropada's son, your disciple. So, let me read a little bit from the commentary. Duryodhan was wise for approaching his martial guru, Dronacharya, at a time of great necessity, yet more politically wise than spiritually. His tenor is filled with sarcasm. Although he approached his guru in form, the spirit of his approach was to instruct his own guru. So, as I say, many people may be very good at praising the guru, even professionally, and reciting prayers and so forth, but are they prepared to really listen to what the guru says? Maybe they like to have themselves be heard and say nice praise of the guru and bring honor to themselves thereby. Another quick incident that this reminds me of is once Prabhupada was in Philadelphia, and one of his disciples, who was a scientist and a doctor, a doctor of science, Bhakti Swarup Damodar Maharaj, brought one of the professors from the maybe the Department of Indology to Prabhupada's darshan one evening. Prabhupada was discussing, and this gentleman was introduced, and he asked a question, something like, who is God? So Prabhupada replied something to the effect that you are a professor of Indology, of theology, and you don't know who is God? What do we call this? He turned to his disciple who had invited this gentleman, Surupdamana Maharaj, what do we call this? And Surupdamana said, we call this cheater, not teacher. The <laughs> Prabhupada would say that. They are cheater, not teacher. <laughs> He's saying they know God, they're teaching on God, but they do not know God. This is cheater, not teacher. <laughs> but Prabhupada, of course, was so charming in the way that he did it that the man was not offended. He said, uh, and Prabhupada said, you must approach sub- uh, submissively. No, he said, well, I, I came to you, therefore I want to know. Prabhupada said, no, you must approach submissively. Praniput, used that word from Bhagavad Gita that I mentioned earlier. And so the man said, yes, tadvidhi pranipatena pariprasnenas evaya. He quoted the verse and folded his hands. I'm approaching submissively. And Prabhupada said, no, not like this. He said, like this. And then he pointed to all his disciples with shaved heads. What he was saying is this, folded hands, had to have some practical application. Anybody can fold the hands. So anybody can say, yes, Guru Dave, you're great, and so but who really believes it? If we believe that, um, as they say, actions speak louder than words. 
So Duryodhan here is praising his Guru Drona, but really he doesn't have much regard for him. Actually, he's trying to instruct him here. Although he approached his Guru in form, the spirit of his approach was to instruct his own Guru. He approached Drona to induce him to fight harder for the cause by mentioning that the Pandav's army was arranged expertly by the son of Drona's old enemy. Duryodhana considered that his teacher Drona was to an extent the cause of his difficulty, for it was Drona who, out of impartiality, instructed Dristadumna in military science, and now it was Dristadumna who had arranged the military formation of those who opposed him. So he says, Oh, my master, just see, behold. He says, he's really saying, look at this. Look what you've done. Sounds like he's glorifying, but if we look closer. Now, look what you've done. The strength of the Pandava's military formation, he's saying, it's actually formidable. And it was arranged by Dropada's son, who was one of your disciples in military science. Dronacharya had a difference with Maharaj uh, Dropada. They were actually, uh, I think, uh, on friendly terms at one point in their youth. And as time went on, Dropada actually acquired a kingdom. And in the course of doing so, he looked a little differently at Drona and insulted him. And Drona took it to heart and he arranged, I believe, for his disciples, Arjuna, in particular, to capture Draupada to conquer his, his kingdom. And so Draupada made a pledge, that a vow that he'd have a son that would kill Dronacharya. Or he prayed for such a son, something to that effect. And this son was just a Dumna. And this son came to Drona and asked to be taught in military science. And Drona knew this is the son that Draupada has prayed for to kill me. But I'm a Brahmana and my service to the community is to teach, so I'll teach in the military arts. So while that was a good quality of Dronas, Duryodhana is criticizing it here, saying, oh, you fool, oh, Gurudev, you fool. Just see, you're the source of my trouble. Here I am trying to get the kingdom, and my opposition, their army, is powerful, and it's been arranged expertly by a person who was destined to kill you that you personally trained in the art of military science. In nonsense, he's saying. So this is the spirit of his glorification of Drona. And Drona, uh, of course, is, is not a fool, so he's, he's listening to this and not appreciating it very much. So Dristadumna was Dropada's son. He was born of Drupada's desire for revenge against Drona. After Drona sent his best student Arjun to capture Drupada for breaking his word of honor, Drupada performed a sacrifice to get a son who would kill Drona. Just Duna was that son. Drona knew this, yet he did not hesitate to instruct him in military science owing to his commitment to Dharma as a teacher over concern for his personal safety. At the outset of the battle, Duryodhana proved himself to be well-versed in politics and diplomacy. 
In form, he was competent to lead, but he lacked spiritual substance. Substance aside, artful was his speech and its implications far-reaching. Knowing that Tristaduna alone might not be considered sufficient cause for concern, he pointed out other prominent members of the opposition, mentioning those who might trouble Drona, who, along with others, were only circumstantially on the side of Duryodhana. So other characters now are going to be mentioned as well, who are on the side of the Pandavas. Atra Sura Maheshvasa Bhimarjuna Samayudhi Yudhana Biratas Chadrupadas Chamaharata. Among the Pandavas soldiers are heroes and archers equal in prowess to Bhima and Arjuna and fighters like Yudhana Virata and the great warrior Drupada. Dushtaketush Chekitana Kasirajas Chaviryavan Purujit Kuntibojas Cha Shaibyas Cha Narapungavaha. Drishtaketu, Chekitana, the valorous Kasiraj, Purujit, Kuntiboja, and the bull among men, Shaibya, are all there. Yudhyamanush, Cha, Vikranta, Utamo, Jas, Chaviryavan, Sobhadro, Dropade, Jas, Cha, Sarva, Eva, Maharata. The mighty Yudhamanyu, the valorous Utamoja, Subhadra's son, and the sons of Dropade are all great warriors. There are some technical terms in these verses. The main term is Maharata. It's used in texts uh, 4 and 6 to describe some of these heroes. Maharata is, I think Vishwan of Chakravartaka went into some detail in his commentary explaining the Atirata, Maharata, and uh, different grades of warriors. One could kill 10,000 men, another lower down 1,000 men, and lowest down, and second of the lowest down could deal one-on-one and be victorious, and the other one was like a half a rata. It's hard to imagine one man defeating 10,000 others, but then again, you've seen the movie Rambo maybe or heard about it, so <laughs> even modern society has some sense that some people are extraordinary in their military valor and prowess and can do the impossible. Suffice to say, they were great warriors. They were very powerful people. Some of these mentioned here. Commentary. Duryodhana's choice of words continues to be significant. Here he directly mentions Drupada in an effort to secure the allegiance of Drona. He mentions Arjun only by way of comparison, taking emphasis off him personally because he is dear to Drona. Drona will not will rise to fight against those of prowess like Arjuna, but fighting personally with Arjuna is nothing for Drona to be inspired about. Of course, Arjuna was the prize student of Dronacharya. So Arjuna has been mentioned, but by way of comparison here, directly to bring him up and say, you get you get to fight with Arjuna's on the other side. This is not, he knows this. This is unfortunate circumstances that he's on the opposite side from Arjuna. So, Hearing about Arjun, that you're going to have to fight with him, is not something that Drona would be inspired about. Duryodhana also betrays his own fears by mentioning Bhima. Bhima vowed to personally kill every one of Dhritarashtra's 100 sons with his own hands, and he was quite capable of doing so. 
So Bhima was the real fear of personally of Duryodhana. He was Duryodhana one, the principal of the hundred sons of Dhritarashtra, so he wouldn't be missed. And of course it was Bhima ultimately who did deal the personal death blow to Duryodhana. After Duryodhana finishes naming the prominent warriors in the Pandava's army, he will have to bolster his own courage by naming the great warriors in his own ranks. So he's actually praising the army of the Pandavas here. But as I mentioned, sometimes praise of others isn't really what it seems to be. So he's praising these other members, but he's really betraying an inferiority complex on his own. Sometimes we do this, we, we become attached to a great person and we praise him and so forth in an attempt to make up for our own uh, shortcomings or to overlook them, to obscure them, to not pay attention to them as we should. Really the effect of associating with great persons is that we should become a great person and that's the teaching. But uh, we have a tendency to glorify that person to the extent that, that a thoughtful person will wonder, will detect our own inferiority complex and question the very nature of that glorification, how shallow or how hollow it is. So we should avoid this. We should know, as I say, that the teaching of great persons is that we should become a great person. So it's said that, what? Amar Guru Jagat Guru. My Guru is the best Guru. This is a Kanishta Adhikari mentality. Now that sounds perhaps odd. We should think that, so let me explain. We should think that our guru is the best guru, but we should think about it in this way. My guru is the best guru because he's my guru and for me he's best. And this guru is the dispensation of Krishna for us locally. Krishna's everywhere and nowhere to be found. He's lost in his leela, for that matter. But through his agent, he comes to minister personally to us. So we should give full attention there. Siddharmarsh once taught us that if in your sadhana, Krishna appears to you and asks for some seva, you should ask him to wait a minute and go ask your guru, is that the fellow that you've been talking about? <laughs> He's asking me for service. Do I have your permission? So just to emphasize the point that this is the dispensation of Krishna that's been directed to us or whom we've been directed to. So we should pay close attention there. And we should learn from paying close attention that what we are to become, that it's not sufficient for us just to say, my guru is the best guru and not understand the significance of that and what sense that could be true and that that statement could be more than just a, a Kanishta Adhikari type of mentality. What, am I, what do I mean by Kanishta Adhikari mentality? We learn that classically a Kanishta Adhikari sees God in the deity but not in the devotee. doesn't stop to think that the devotee established the temple. The deity was willing to come because the devotee invited the deity. I came to see the deity. I don't want to, I don't want to see Maharaj. Or sometimes the person, the Maharaj is, who has perhaps established the temple, somebody comes in, maybe a Hindu gentleman with his family, kind of goes through the middle of the talk, ignoring it, walks up to the deity, 
puts a paisa in the box and goes out. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing, but he's not tracing out the higher manifestation of the deity in the form of the Vaishnav, whom, without whom he wouldn't know to go and offer his uh, pranam to the deity and put the money in the box and so on. So similarly, Krishna is not, as Krishna is not alone and is surrounded by his devotees, if we are to approach Brajendanandan Krishna, then we'll come in touch with so many things that make Brajendanandan Krishna what he is. Krishna without Shakti, God without Shakti, that is uh, Brahman. God with Shakti means God becomes more beautiful, more of what Brahman actually is, the Absolute is, shines in the rays of his Shakti, his Swarup Shakti. So if we are to come in touch with Krishna, Brajananda Krishna, Braj Krishna, Krishna Vrindavan, then we have to come in touch with Krishna's associates, whom he's always with, and uh, the sense of, of Radha's importance has to come to, to light. So when we hear, like Mirabai, for example, was known for singing many beautiful songs about Krishna, but Sridhar taught, in the songs we hear nothing about any of the associates of Krishna. So what is that experience of Krishna? She's talking about Braj Krishna, but nobody's there with him but her? No, it doesn't work like that. So similarly, Guru has associates as well. We shall place our guru in context of his associates, Guru Varga we call, the, like maybe the godbrothers of the guru, the associates of the guru, and prominent disciples of the guru for that matter, who may know something about his teaching and what he, his vision and so forth. So there should be some regard for them, for those type of disciples, from the disciples who don't have that insight. Practical. So when we say, my guru is the best guru, then the expression of this that we're critiquing or criticizing is when it's praise of the guru in name, but it doesn't translate out into any practical understanding of how that guru and his teachings are manifesting and teaching. It doesn't translate out into respect for his associates or for his leading disciples. I only want to hear from Gurudev. I don't respect anybody else. This is the same Kanishtadikari mentality where we just see the God and the deity. It's an extension of the same idea. So my guru is the best guru, and then by implication, your guru is not, and your guru is not. And so this is not a dynamic understanding of the, the principle of guru, guru tattva. Really, we are servants of divine faith, and we are not to say how that will manifest, where or why but we are to regard it wherever it does. And it should be startling to us. That's the norm. You understand? We might think, well, it should happen here because this, this, this is in line and it should all... But sometimes it doesn't. It happens in another way. <coughs> and the whole thing is miraculous. How it happened to us, we'll think, was miraculous. <laughs> we'll think, I wasn't qualified at all, but it happened. I, it's just a miracle. Unexpected. But then we, we start to think that it should be expected, it has to come in this way because the 
We get some sadanta and teaching and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, it's an uncommon event. And Krishna appears when he appears, where he appears, to what extent, when, it, when he wants. And wherever he does and to whatever extent, a saragrahi Vaishnav, an essential Vaishnav, who's worshipping his own guru essentially, will see the divine faith of others as an extension of the manifestation of guru that he's experienced and have regard for that. It's not our business that we know something more, higher teaching, to trample on the understanding of others at a lower level because they've not come to our higher level, which we may only know about theoretically anyway. When we do that, we become in a lower position than even even those persons who don't know as much as we do. They know more. Bhaktivinoda Thakur was very keen on emphasizing this point. The true beauty, true elegance is knowing one's adhikar, one's position, and acting accordingly. Whereas acting other than what is one's position, that becomes a mess. It makes everything a mess. It's very ugly. So we should see the beauty in, in others who are acting according to their realization and progressing in divine faith. We can encourage them to go further, but simply by telling them, you're in a lower position, we're in a higher position, this is probably not the best way to be be encouraging of divine faith. So that divine faith, that is worshipable by us. We should see that as extension of our own Gurudev, our own experience in relation to the Guru Parampara. So, just say, my Guru is the best Guru, that uh, may, may be very hollow. It may be an inferiority complex. That uh, You say it over enough and people, intelligent people are going to wonder, well, is he just trying to convince himself or uh, does he really believe that? And if he does, he should be coming great also. And how will he become great? How will we know he's becoming great? By becoming humble. Because humble means that I've come in touch with something that's great. And I recognize that. So if I'm actually in touch with that, therefore I'm becoming great, that's the objective, to come in touch with that. And naturally, I'll feel humble. It's so great, infinite, and I'm so small. Really, if we are to approach the infinite, being finite, our natural experience will be the contrast. How finite and tiny I am. How great is infinite. I cannot say how great it is. That's how great it is. It's not possible to say how great is God. But I can say some things. I know I'm not great <laughs> in comparison. And this is, of course, then the greatness of someone. This is Mahatma. There's only one great soul, that is Krishna. But there can be two, three, four, so many. And what are that plural? Who say, Krishna's great, Krishna's great. This way they become great. So we should praise God and Guru, but it should not be hollow. So when we hear the praise, we should look to see, is there any substance to his words? And Duryodhana doesn't have much substance here. Duryodhana finishes naming prominent warriors of the Pandavas army. After he does so, he will have to bolster his own courage by naming the great warriors of his own ranks. As he does so, he will have to address Drona's reaction to everything he has already said. As a Brahmin, priest, teacher, Drona understands Duryodhana's underlying fear and naturally thinks, if you are so fearful of the enemy, why don't you make a treaty with them and avoid the fight? 
What is the need for such eagerness to fight? This is the natural and typical Brahminical disposition of, of Drona. In thinking thus, it is apparent that Drona does not appreciate the underlying sarcasm of his disciple. Thus, Duryodhan will have to make up for his sarcasm and speak respectfully to Dronacharya in the course of bolstering his own confidence. Asmakam tu vijottama nayaka mama sainyasya sangnartam tan bravimite. Now, Duryodhan continues, let me tell you about the distinguished members of our own ranks, O best of the twice born, the leaders of my army are Bhavan Bhishmas Chakarnas Chakripas Cha Samatinjaya Ashvatam Vikarnas Cha Somadatis Tataibacha Anyecha Bhavasura Madarte Tyakta Jibitaha Nana Shastra Praharnaha Sarve Yudha Visharadaha Your good self, Bhishma, Karna, and Kripa, who is always victorious in battle, Ashvatama, Vikarna, and the son of Somadatta, as well as many other heroes, are all ready to lay down their lives for my sake, skilled in battle and well-equipped. Duryodhan has said, O best of the Brahmins, so he's been speaking sarcastically. It's not that it goes away entirely, but he's trying to make up for it to some extent. Drone is not a fool. He detects what, what is the spirit behind his disciples' words. So Duryodhan says, O best of the twice-born, and glorifies him first. Then he mentions Bhishma, then Karna, then Kripa, Ashwatambhikarna, and the son of Somadatta. So there's an order to all this. And this Duryodhan, he's very, very artful in his speech. He's very, very politically astute. He was a great king by material standards. Actually, the people were happy under his rule. But spiritually speaking, he was a real zero. As I mentioned earlier, his name, Duryodhana, means Duryodhana. It means a dirty fighter, really. And that means Adharma. He was prepared for to go against the Dharma for the sake of his own satisfaction. And this is, of course, as we see, contrasted with Arjuna. Such a contrast. So here, Duryodhan says that his warriors are prepared to die for him. Actually, Suramadarte Tyakta Jivitaha, Tyakta Jivitaha, it really means who have died. Literally means who will die for me. He says they're prepared to die because that's the future. He's saying it as if to say, well, they're that committed to me that they're prepared to die, but literally it means they will die for me. And so the, the commentators have brought this out. When someone utters the truth unwittingly, it is said that Saraswati, the goddess of speech and wisdom, speaks through him. So unwittingly he has said, they're prepared to die for me. They will die for me. And of course we'll find in the 11th chapter when Krishna shows within his Vishvarup, the Kalarup, his universal form, he shows the, the form of time also. That time I am. He shows this. And that time he shows him killing as time all of these soldiers on the army of Duryodhana. So it is said that the goddess of fortune appeared on his t- the goddess of excuse me learning Saraswati appeared on his tongue. 
Truer words were never spoken. Yes, they will all die. It's a fact. That this is the case here, for what Duryodhan was, says will undoubtedly come true. His warriors will all die for him, as will he himself. Krishna will tell Arjuna, Bhagavad Gita 11.33, they are all ready put to death by my arrangement, confirming the inevitability of their demise. Duryodhan knows that, that Karna has vowed not to fight until Bhishma is killed. He nevertheless mentions Karna after Bhishma to remind him that should Bhishma de- be defeated, he will be relying on Karna to bring him victory. So there's some history to this where Bhishma actually, Karna's caste was unknown, but he was a great warrior in terms of his prowess. Actually, he was also a warrior by his birth, but it was unknown that he was actually the eldest son of Kunti and the eldest brother of the the six Pandavas <laughs> instead of the five Pandavas. But, um, like I say, his caste was, was unknown, and Bhishma criticized him for this battle. He called him uh, uh, that kind of Ratsa who can't even fight half a person. And uh, Karna took offense at this and called him an old man and said that he wouldn't fight in the battle until Bhishma was defeated. So Karna actually sat it out, the battle, until Bhishma was defeated, which was really the end of the war for the most part. And then Karna came on just to be slayed himself. So Duryodhan is, he knows his position is weak, He's praised the Pandava army, but only to try to rally his own troops. And he's dealing with people whose commitment to him, which he says here, they're prepared to die for me, whose commitment is actually not very solid. People are on his party, on his side, a number of them mentioned here, by circumstance only. Whereas in spirit... They're on the side of the Pandavas. So, by obligatory social convention uh, circumstances, they're on one side. And everybody on the Pandavas side, by contrast, is there in spirit entirely. And there's a contrast, like Vaidhi Bhakti is obligatory. Ragnuga Bhakti is spontaneous. We can understand from this that the latter, Raghunuga Bhakti, has more force, binding force, more compelling than Vaidhi Bhakti. Not that the Pandavas are Raghunugas, I'm not saying that, and the, the Kauravas are all Vaidhi Bhaktis. I'm just making a comparison from our own theology to help us, drawing from here to help us understand the force of love, the power of love that is characterized by Rag compared to the power of duty. There's said to be, by Bhaktivinotaku, four motivations for loving God. Fear, which is the lowest. Prospect, and there's what I'll get out of it. Second. Third is duty, because it's the right thing to do, to serve God. And the fourth is love. We advocate that we should serve God out of duty in the sense that we advocate Vaidhi Bhakti, but we don't teach that Vaidhi Bhakti will beget Ragatmika Bhakti, spontaneous love of Krishna in Braj. It won't. But if done properly in the context of Arsampradaya, it will beget Adhikar, 
or eligibility for Rag Marg. And then treading that Marg, we can enter into Braj Bhakti. So we should know the place of all these things and how to go towards our, the ideal of our Sampradaya systematically, step by step. In the beginning, even of one who is eligible for Rag Marg, that Vaidhi Bhakti will, must be in place to give support to that Rag. You can understand that's only the beginning. It gives some support. Just like we teach Daivavarna Ashram, Bhaktivinoda Thakur taught, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsri Thakur instituted this conception. It means Varnashram for devotees. He calls it Daivavarnashram because devotees, bhaktas, who have bhakti, who have adhikara for bhakti, have faith in bhakti, in Krishna, Krishna Nam, what the Shastra says about bhakti and its efficacy. They are, by that faith, which is their eligibility to tread the path of bhakti, relieved technically, from the obligations of Varnashram, Dharma Shastra, all those rules and regulations that just, if you would hear them all, you would quit if you knew you had to perform them. But, Bhaktivinoda Thakur reasoned that just because we come to the Paramahamsa Marg, this path of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, doesn't mean we became a Paramahamsa today. Therefore, he said, Varnashram has some application, even for devotees. So he instructed Bhakti Siddhanta Sarchitakra to fashion something called Daiva Varnashram. Daiva means divine Varnashram, not ordinary Varnashram, which is divine in the, in the most general sense. It comes from God, the idea. And what is the idea? Just in brief, of course, the spirit of it, the center of it is responsible, dutiful, engagement in life, to be mindful of, of one's responsibilities and we would be hard-pressed to establish Varnashram. We have to find a king to start with. <laughs> We're pretty sure and a shortage of those these days. So anyway, to gravitate toward the spirit of it, Bhagavad Gita, of course, takes us from Varnashram and very basic religious life all the way to a glimpse into the realm of Raj Bhakti. So, we may tread the bhakti marg, and that's really what's advocated in Bhagavad Gita, but as we come on to the bhakti marg, then we should see a development in ourselves in terms of everything that's mentioned in Bhagavad Gita. We should become dutiful, responsible people, well-balanced psychologically and so forth. Our involvement on a certain level shouldn't be a result of our inability to function properly in the society, therefore I'll become a brahmachari or something like that. We should see that our bhakti takes us through all these stages. It's something like right livelihood. Right livelihood means not particularly what you do, although that may have some bearing. We don't want to be a butcher. So some bearing, our livelihood, our means of livelihood should be such that it's not incongruous with our teaching, but beyond the type of livelihood, it's the spirit of the livelihood. What is the livelihood? This is the point. We're talking about, we want people to join a spiritual mission. We want people to take, to touch the soul. In the deepest sense, to touch the soul and to know the soul means to know oneself in relation to God, because we cannot know ourselves fully without knowing ourselves in relation to God. So this is bhakti. Bhakti. 
So we want to encourage people to touch the soul, to know themselves. So what is right livelihood then? What is the spirit of right livelihood? The spirit of right livelihood is, again, it's not what we do, it's how we do it. So how do we do it? Our livelihood has to be, have a greater balance of sacrifice in it than enjoying. We have to recognize, I've got material desires. I'm a sanishtabhakta. It would be good to know it's okay to be such a person. Because sometimes we preach in such a way that people think it's not okay, that's maya. So I've got to be something better, but I really don't have the more, but I don't have the adhikar for that. So I try to do it artificially, and then we make the whole mess of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We need a bhakti vinod. <laughs> Come and sort it all out again. History repeats itself. And sometimes in a place where you'd least likely expect it, in the very mission of the Paribara of Bhakti Vinod. So there has to be a, if it's to be spiritual, our livelihood. Spiritual means sacrifice. Love is based on sacrifice, arises out of sacrifice. So there has to be a greater balance in our life of material pursuit and material desire and so forth, of sacrifice. And we should, of course, chant Hare Krishna and practice, but we have desires, so they take us to do different things that don't really have much to do with bhakti, but we can bring them in the context. We can make our whole life give it a spiritual color to the extent that it's that this greater balance of sacrifice is is there. So sacrifice for the cause of the Vaishnavas, for the deity, for the, the work means money. Money means power to enjoy, and it means power to make advancement, at least in this stage of life that I'm talking about, this stage of bhakti. Because if we take that money and some greater balance we give for sacrifice to the spiritual cause, then that's the balance I'm talking about that that makes our livelihood right. We have a right to a livelihood. Otherwise, then we don't have a right to that livelihood. We've ignored from where it's coming, from where our livelihood has come, from God. So to acknowledge that, this is right livelihood. So whether it be money, energy, expertise. We've learned if you have to work in the world, you have to learn something about the world. It's very practical. A mission of of devotees that's simply engaged in Krishna's work, a higher stage, alone, requires some support. They have the time to support themselves. Neither is it really appropriate. If they have that adhikar, they're doing only Krishna's work. And whatever Krishna gives, they live on that. Sometimes Sudhamar said, in their mouth, they didn't even have enough rice to go around. So when we give sacrifice to that, see that flourish, so that they have enough rice to go around, for example. We make progress. We grow. What is the fruit, immediate fruit, of right livelihood? What is it? Gan. Knowledge. So mystic insight. From right livelihood comes mystic insight. What is that mystic insight in the context of what I'm talking about? of a life of bhakti. It means the insight, the sense, develops, starts to develop that, oh, so many things I'm doing, but they really don't have that much meaning. It's time wasted. It's time, And the sense is not theoretical. It's really developing. I'm getting tired of all those things that I'm working so hard for, for all my life. I'm getting tired of those things. And with knowledge, the concomitant, of knowledge is detachment. 
So detachment starts to develop. Detachment from those things, that work, that karma, that get in the way of what I sense by my mystic insight is more important, an inner life. Moving from a religious orientation to an experiential orientation. One becomes equipped with enough mystic insight and corresponding detachment that he can move from a life of bhakti at the stage of, as I'm describing it, right livelihood to a life of doing Krishna's work. In other words, rather than doing work I want to do, but making it right by acknowledging where my livelihood really comes from, comes from God, 